You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, please visit Stonegate.Church. Okay, so today, uh, 2021, first Sunday, here we are. And to kind of introduce where we're going today, I actually want to rewind all the way back to November and, uh, and kind of just refresh and, and help us remember what we covered in the middle of November. We were in the middle of a larger set of sermons on the parables, and we had three weeks in November where we looked at the parables of Luke 15. And that really um, formed a mini-series for us called Who's Your One? And uh, and we're just praying that that Who's Your One would be something that sticks into the heart of our church and really moves us out into the world engaging people who are far from God with Jesus. So if you remember, our entire church, 100% of us, we all jumped in and just asking the Lord for clarity, who would be the one person, not 100, not 50, not 10, but just the one person that you would want me to do two things uh, with. One, to pray for consistently, to just ask the Lord to be doing the preparatory work in their heart of, of preparing them for a spiritual conversation, to pray, then pursue. And pursue meant by the end of 2020, so by the time you get to December the 31st, that you have initiated a spiritual conversation about Jesus with that person. Now, let me stop just for a moment there and encourage you. We would love to hear stories about how those conversations have gone. So you can go to stonegate.church slash one and uh, throw in your story there. We would just love to be encouraged by that and allow our church family to be encouraged by that. So please do that, uh, stonegate.church slash one. Um, and and tell us your story. We would just love to hear um, how the Lord is at work in those conversations. And so that was November. Uh, We we had a a moment of all committing our our one together. We turned in those cards in November, Um, and it's just been a great couple of months as we have really turned our gaze up to these things that just matter most in life. Now, here we are um, moving into 2021, and in a lot of ways, I want to reframe the question of November from who's your one to who is your new one. Uh, For the first quarter of 2021, who would be the the new person that Jesus would have you pray for and pursue? And by pursue, we mean in the next two months that you would initiate a spiritual conversation with that person. Who would be that person that the Lord would have in front of you? Maybe it's the same person, maybe it's a new person, but who is your new one? Who is the one person you want to pray for and pursue as we begin 2021? So as um, you're absorbing and listening and participating in the preaching this morning, as you're doing that, I just want uh, encourage you to be having that conversation with the Lord, asking the Lord to clarify who would be that one person for the first quarter of 2021. Okay, now as you're having that conversation with the Lord, um, I want us to think through six verses out of 2 Corinthians chapter 4. We're going to think these through together. And in these verses, here's what we're seeing. Um, Paul shows us a picture of conversion. It's the first thing we see. And Paul shows us the means of conversion what God uses to to bring these things about. So a picture of conversion and the means of conversion. So let's start with the picture. The picture of conversion. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 4, starting in verse 1. Paul says, Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. 
Now, in the next two verses, Paul is about to describe our condition, our condition. And here it is in verse 3. Here's our condition apart from Jesus, prior to meeting Jesus. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing. In their case, in the case of the perishing, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So Paul here is showing us a couple of things about our condition prior to meeting Jesus. And here's the first one, that we are perishing. You you see that word show up, the last word of verse 3, to those who are perishing. This is one way to describe our condition outside of Jesus. We are perishing. Now, let's think about that word perish for a moment. In the scriptures, you see that word show up repeatedly in the scriptures, and it could refer to one of two things. It could refer to um, human beings, men and women, dying physically. That's one of the ways the Bible uses the word uh, perish uh, to describe dying physically. So you see this in Mark chapter 4. If you remember the scene, uh, Jesus is asleep at the bottom of the boat. His disciples are up on the top of the boat, and uh, a storm erupts, and and the disciples are terrified. They go down into the bottom, they wake Jesus up, and they look at Jesus and say, don't you know we're about to perish, right? That, That is a way of using that word perish to say we are about to die, like take our last breath, die physically. That's one way the Bible uses the word. The second way is to describe spiritual or eternal death. This is John 3.16 is a good illustration of this. Um, John 3.16, it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Now think about the contrast in John 3.16. On one side, there is everlasting life. Okay, that's, that's one side. Then there's the contrast or perish. So everlasting life or perish would mean everlasting death. Those are the two options forever. It's only one of two. Everlasting life or to perish. Everlasting death. That way of of, to perish means to, to, to die eternally, forever spiritually. Or you could think of it this way. It means to be cut off from the presence of God forever. That's what it means to perish. And gosh, every time I read that word in the scriptures, I I just, I I ask the Lord to help me feel the weight of that word. To perish. To be cut off from the presence of God forever. Uh, Preaching is such an interesting ministry. And especially when you come across words like perish. Because how in the world do you convey those words, that word, with its proper weight to people? I I don't know how to do that. To be cut off from God forever. When people die rejecting Jesus, they will perish forever in hell. That just makes me tremble to think about that. We're talking about the eternal 
destination of human beings. These are the only two options. People will experience the warm welcome of God forever or the righteous wrath of God forever. And hear me on this. People who are perishing, they have names. They're people in your neighborhood. They're people that you work with. They're friends, family, sons, daughters, husbands, wives, parents, siblings. We're perishing. Uh, But Paul also describes our condition in another way. Uh, He says, yes, you're perishing, but he says you also have a progression of problems. This is another way to describe this condition apart from Jesus. We're perishing, but we have this progression of problems. And verse 4 explains the progression of problems. Uh, Verse 4 is essentially answering why are people perishing? He tells us in verse 3, right there at the end, to those who are perishing. Now, why are they perishing? Verse 4 tells us, in their case... The God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Now, I want to take verse 4, and I want to ask a series of questions, and I want to work from the the back of verse 4 back to the front. Okay, so we're going to work backwards as we ask these questions. So here's question number one. Why are people perishing? Why is that happening? Here is Paul's answer in verse 4. It's because of unbelief. That's why people perish, because they persist in their unbelief. They they refuse to believe the good news of Jesus, the the amazing news, the, the great news that even though we have fired the first shot at God, even though we are living in willful rebellion against God, that God has done everything needed, everything to to pave a way for us to be reconciled to God, to clear the way for our reconciliation. God the Father has sent God the Son to live perfectly in our place. Everywhere that you have failed in life, Jesus succeeded. He, He lived perfectly in your place. And not only did he live in your place, he also died in your place. And on the third day, Jesus rose him from, or God rose him from the dead, showing God's power over Satan, sin, and death. And now, through Jesus, God is looking at every one of us saying, can we make this deal? Here's the deal that I propose to, to those who have fired the first shot. Here's the deal that I propose. Would you open up your hands, and would you be so humble as to let me take your sin from you. Would you give me all of your sin? Those sins that you don't talk about, those sins that bring so much shame up when you think about them that you've just sort of committed to take them to the grave with you? Will you let me have all of your sin? And for all those who humbly say yes, Here's all of my sin. God looks back to us and says, well, here's the second part of the deal. Not only will I take all of your sin from you, but would you allow me to put into your hands the perfect record of Jesus's righteousness, his perfect life? Can I I put that into your hands so that from now on, for the rest of eternity, when I look at you, I'm not seeing you in your sin. I'm seeing you in Christ, in Jesus. 
I'm seeing you as a perfect person, perfected in Jesus, washed from your sin. That's how I'm going to see you forever. Would you be so humble as to take that deal? I'll take your sin. I'll give you the perfect record of Jesus's righteousness. Would you do that? And Paul is saying here, for, for those who are perishing, for people who are perishing, they are persisting in their unbelief. They're looking at God and saying, no, I will not take that deal. I am out on Jesus. No to all of that. They're persisting in their unbelief. Now, let me take a small detour, and I want to talk about the word belief for a moment. That, that word belief is a big biblical word. And we live in a culture where that word belief needs to constantly be clarified because there's so much confusion around that word. And here is the heart of the confusion. Most people in our culture, when they define the word belief in the Bible, here is what it means to them. I am agreeing, I believe in some facts about Jesus. He came. He lived perfectly. He died on the cross for my sin. He even rose from the dead. I, I agree that those things happened. Now, in the Bible, ag agreeing with those facts is not, it's it just not the whole picture. A biblical belief is not less than that, but it is definitely more than that. Belief in the Bible is, yes, I agree with those facts, but even more than that, my heart has felt those facts. Those facts have gone from theoretical out there to they have come down into my heart and they have exploded with life and vibrancy. I have like a realizing sense of those facts. That's biblical belief. Um, we often and historically have kind of used this illustration from Jonathan Edwards to describe this. He was a pastor of a couple hundred years ago, and he used the illustration of honey to describe biblical belief and to contrast it with just the mere agreement of facts. He says, you know, I, I could hold up a jar of honey in front of you, and I could talk all about honey. I could tell you all the facts about honey. I could talk to you about how sweet honey is. I could talk to you about the golden hue, the thickness. I could talk to you about all of those facts, and you could even agree with those facts, but there is something much different about you agreeing with those facts and the moment of honey hitting your tongue for the first time and doing the mambo on your taste buds. There's a difference in those two things, isn't there? There's a difference in theoretically knowing about honey and experientially tasting honey. And biblical belief is the moment when those facts about Jesus go from theoretical and abstract to deep down in your heart where you are tasting and seeing them. That when those facts are exploding with life and vibrancy in you, for the first time now you're moving toward Jesus, repenting of your sin, hurling your life upon him, trusting and treasuring Jesus. That's biblical belief. Not just the agreement of facts, but having a realized sense of those facts. That those facts exploding in your soul with life and vibrancy. And Paul was saying here that people are perishing because they persist in their unbelief. They're not trusting and treasuring the person of Jesus. Then we ask the second question. Why do men persist in their unbelief? Why, why do men and women not believe? Paul's answer in verse 4 is, because they are blind, because we're blind. 
that because of sin, we are born without the ability to see the beauty of Christ and the wonder of the gospel. We come out of the, the womb um, with a lack of spiritual eyes. We, we just can't see the beauty of these things. It's not that we can't comprehend a few facts. We can comprehend facts. Uh, being blind does not mean that, that when we're looking at Jesus uh, that, that we can't say, uh, yeah, he came, he lived, he died, he wrote. We can do all those things and still be blind. Our blindness means that those facts are bland to us. They stir nothing in us. See, part of what sin, uh, one of the symptoms of sin is very similar to COVID-19. It just removes the ability to taste and smell Jesus. Jesus just becomes flavorless, bland, and, and boring to us. That's spiritual blindness. We're persisting in our unbelief because we're blind. And then Paul goes on, well, why are men blind? Why does that happen? He answers in verse 4. That is a work of Satan. Look at verse 4. In, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers. Now, I want to take a moment and just allow this text to remind us of the context in which conversions happen. The context in which people go from death to life. They meet Jesus in a particular context, and, and this verse reminds us of the context. The conversion of men and women is war. It is war. That's the context. Conversions, pe people being rescued by Jesus, meeting Jesus, that all happens in the context of warfare. When you begin to pray for people who don't know Jesus and pursue them, inviting them into life with Jesus, initiating spiritual conversations with Jesus. When you do that, you are stepping onto a battlefield where the, the metal flies, where flesh is torn, where an, an, a real enemy, Satan, is active. That, that's the context of, of conversions. This is what's happening. And Paul shows us a glimpse of the dark work of Satan, his blinding work. He says, here's what he's doing. He's blinding us. He's keeping us from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. This is what, this is what our enemy is doing among your coworkers, in your neighborhood. If you've got sons and daughters and you're talking to your sons and daughters about Jesus, this is what Satan is doing as you're talking to your sons and daughters about Jesus. He is keeping them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Every time that you open up your mouth and you talk about Jesus with someone, this is what Satan is doing. He's keeping them from seeing the light of the glory of the gospel of Christ. Okay, so this is our condition, verses 3 and 4. We're perishing. People are perishing. Why are they perishing? Well, it's because they are persisting in their unbelief. And why do they persist in their unbelief? It's because they're blind. And why are we blind? It's because of the work of sin and Satan in our life to keep us from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. That's our condition. Now, I want you to skip over verse 5 and get to verse 6. And here's our cure. Verses 3 and 4, our condition. Verse 6 is our cure. Look at verse 6. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown 
in our hearts, and look at what that light in our hearts does, to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That is an amazing verse. I want to read that one more time for you. For for God said, our condition, we're, we're blind, we're stuck in our sin. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, here's the cure. He has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus. What is our cure? Here's our cure. God shines light into our dark hearts. That's the only cure for our condition. That is our only hope. Without this, we are doomed in our blindness. Here's the cure. God shines a light into our dark hearts where we can actually see the beauty of Jesus. That's our only hope. That's the only thing that can rescue a person out of their perishing. Or as Ephesians 2 says, that we are dead in our sins, spiritually unresponsive. We're just lacking the ability to to see Christ. But Ephesians 2 tells us that God does what only God can do. He breathes life into our hearts. He, He makes us alive. That's another sort of similar imagery here. You see it in Jeremiah. God takes our heart of stone and takes that heart out and gives us a transplant. He puts a heart of flesh inside of us. Same sort of imagery. Paul's using it here. We're blind, but God shines a light into our hearts so that we can see the person of Jesus. And when God does that, when God shines a light into our heart, we are fundamentally changed. In the next chapter, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul says that we are new creations. Isn't that amazing? This is the sort of profound saving work that God does. He makes us new creations. When God shines a light into our heart, it's as if a chain reaction starts in our heart. The first thing that happens is we see the sinfulness of our sin. For the very first time, our sin actually becomes ugly to us, horrifying to us. We see the sinfulness of our sin, and as soon as we see the sinfulness of our sin, then we begin to see the amazing grace of God that covers our sin. And when we see our sinfulness and God's amazing grace found in the person of Jesus, then we run to Jesus. We turn from our sin and we throw our life upon Jesus, relying upon Jesus, trusting and treasuring Jesus. That's the chain reaction that starts as soon as God shines a light into our heart. We go from perishing to rescued to reconcile to God, saved from destruction. That's the chain reaction that is sparked by God shining a light into our heart. Now, I want to pause here and linger for a moment and just remind us of a couple of different things. Uh, First, I I just want to remind us that this is what God does. Not just back in Bible times, but like, Today, 21st century America, this is what God does. He rescues perishing people by shining a light into their heart. And it's not just that God saves, it's that God loves to save. If you want evidence of that, 
Just look upon the dying love of Jesus on the cross. Every time you see Jesus there hanging up on the cross, that is meant to remind you of just how much God loves saving, perishing people. This is the extent that God would go to to rescue perishing people. This is the extent that God would go to to rescue you. He would allow his one and only beloved son to perish in our place. That's how much God loves saving. Now, for some of us in the room this morning, you are investigating Jesus, you're kicking the tires, you're, you're doing all that, but there's never been this moment where you have made that decisive move toward Jesus, trusting and treasuring him. That moment's never happened. And because that moment's never happened, here is the truth. If you perished physically today, if you died, if you breathed your last today, you would then perish forever spiritually, cut off from God for all eternity. Now, I just want that to sink in for a second. If you died today, you would perish forever. But why would you perish? Well, because you're persisting in your unbelief. Why are you persisting in your unbelief? Well, it's because you're blind. Jesus has just always kind of been boring to you and bland to you. But for some in the room today, God is shining a light into your heart. He's shining that light, and that chain reaction is starting. You're starting to see the ugliness of your sin, the amazing grace of God, the beauty of Jesus. And for the first time, something in your heart is leaping toward Jesus. And if that's you, I just want to encourage you today, take that decisive step. What better way to start 2021 than that? Amen? There is no better way to start 2021 than to run to Jesus with everything you have. To go from perishing to rescued, dead to alive, lost to found. There is no better way to start 2021. Now, for others in the room, you have been rescued from perishing by Jesus. God has shown a light into your heart. And I want to remind you today, I want you just to go back and revisit the moment that happened. The, the moment God rescued you. And I want to remind you today that that was a sovereign miracle. Like, imagine for a second that a person dies right here on the stage. And after dying, they are risen from the dead. And you see it all happen. I mean, they die right here and they come back to life all right there. That would be no greater miracle than the moment you were rescued by Jesus than the moment God brought your dead heart to life. God, God removed the scales from your eyes so that you could see the beauty of Jesus. That is a divine miracle. That is grace showing up in your life. I, I love how Charles Spurgeon encourages us. He says it this way. He says, let me refresh your memories with your calling, with that moment that God shone that light into your heart. He says, was there not a day, the memories of which you fondly cherish, when you were called from death unto life? Fly back now to the day and hour if you can. Just go back to that moment. When was that moment? 
And he says, if you don't have a moment, um, light upon the season thereabouts, when that great transaction took place in which you were made Christ's forever by the voluntary surrender of yourself to him. And looking back, does it not strike you that your calling must have been of divine origin? How gracious that calling must have been since it came to you from God. It came to you irresistibly and came to you with such personal demonstration. It says, what grace there was. What was there in you to suggest a motive why God should call you? In other words, what did God see in you that he should have done that? He says, oh, beloved, I can hardly ask you that question without a tear rising in my own eye. Should not this calling of ours evoke our most intense gratitude, our most earnest love? Then he goes on, I love this last phrase. Oh, if he had not have called you, where would you be right now? Have you ever asked yourself that question? If God had not have called you, where would you be right now? I was just thinking last night, I was 13 years old sitting in the back of a small little church when God removed the scales from my eyes and allowed me to see for the first time the beauty of Jesus and the amazing grace found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And in that moment, I just couldn't say no. I was just an all-in, yes, yes, God, I want Jesus. And I often think, where would I be apart from that miracle of grace? Wouldn't be here this morning. Where would I be? Where would you be apart from the amazing grace of God? So that's our picture of conversion. Now briefly, let me just show you the means of conversion. The means. So think about this passage again, verses 3 and 4. It's showing our condition apart from Jesus. We're perishing. Why are we perishing? Because we're in our unbelief. Why are we in our unbelief? Because we're blind. The God of this age, the God of this world has blinded our minds. Right? That, that's our condition. Now, verse 6 shows us our cure. And it's the only cure. It's the only thing that will help us. It's the only remedy for what ails us. God shines a light into our heart. That's verse 6. He does this sovereign miracle of of allowing our blind eyes to see the person of Jesus. Now, I want you to look at what's sandwiched between these two things, our condition and the cure. We're we're blind, and here comes God with the light. What what is sandwiched between those two things? Well, it's verse 5. Look at verse 5. Between these two realities, condition, the cure, for what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. What stands between these two things? God's people proclaiming Jesus. That's what stands between them. Paul's saying, Here's, here are the two massive realities in your life. You are blind and cannot see Jesus. You're stuck in your unbelief and you're perishing. And here's the other massive reality. We need the cure of God shining a light into our hearts. And Paul's showing us what takes these two things and brings them together. Paul's saying it's us proclaiming Jesus. That's that's what God uses. It's the only thing God uses. This is God's 
primary means of marrying these two things, of this cure meeting our condition, it's the people of God proclaiming Jesus. That's the tool verse 5 shows us. What does God use to shine this light into people's hearts? Verse 5 shows us. Ordinary, common people like you and me talking about Jesus. I'm just saying, if I were God, I might have found a more reliable tool. But God chose us. He's saying, no, no, th this is my tool. This is what I want to use. Th this, is, this is how I'm going to get my cure into this dark condition of the human heart. I'm going to use you. Ordinary, common people like me and you. That's the means. And in light of that, this passage carries an invitation. It's God saying, gosh, I want to shine into some hearts this year. The first quarter of 2021, I'm going to save and rescue people because I love to do that. And I'm inviting you into my rescuing work. I'm inviting you into my light shining work. I want to use you in these things. This is the invitation of this passage. It's God looking at us and saying, hey, how about we do this? You speak and I'll shine a light. You witness and I'll work. That's, that's what God is inviting us into. He's saying, come on, you were made for this. You were made to be right in the middle of my rescuing work. So come on and let's play. Let's do this in 2021. Now, in light of that, I want to pause now and I just want to end with four prayers as I think about 2021. And I want to invite you into praying with me these four prayers. When we think about this year, when we think about um, participating in this light, shining, rescuing work of Jesus, four prayers, I want to invite you to pray with me. Prayer number one is for God to deepen the ache in our church family, in your own heart, that God would deepen the ache in us. Romans 9 is an amazing chapter for a multitude of reasons. It is theologically thick and amazing in that way. Um, but it's also amazing. I've just, I've never forgot one of the first times I read through Romans 9, noticing what Paul says at the very beginning of that chapter. When he says, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Now think about that phrase, great sorrow, unceasing anguish. And ask yourself the question, when's the last time you felt great sorrow or unceasing anguish? What produces great sorrow and unceasing anguish in your heart? For Paul, his answer in Romans 9 is this. Here's what produces that. Here's why I have that sorrow and unceasing anguish. It's because people are perishing. People that I love are perishing. People that I care for are perishing. People are perishing, and it is producing deep anguish in his soul. What you're seeing in Romans 9 is evidence that Jesus has, has taken his aching heart for the lost and planted that ache in Paul's heart. Paul has received Jesus' aching heart. And I want to ask you again this morning, is that aching heart in you? Is it in you? I've been around sort of the, the church of Jesus for most of my life. And one of the sad realities that, that I've just had to acknowledge and confront is that 
in most of Jesus' church, that ache is strangely absent. And Stonegate, I don't want that for us. I I want Jesus' heart to be our heart. And if Jesus' heart is aching for people who are perishing, man, may our hearts ache for those who are perishing. Maybe I could ask it this way to you. When, or maybe ever, but, but when is the last time you have been able to cry over the reality that people are dying and they are perishing forever? Has God ever gifted you the ability to weep over that? If not, let's just ask him for that. That would be a beautiful gift for the Lord to give in 2021, is to tenderize our heart to the point where we could cry tears of anguish over the fact that people are perishing and being cut off from God forever. A renewed ache. Here's the second prayer. Renewed urgency. A renewed urgency. Not just that we would feel a deepened ache, but that we would also have and embody urgency. Um, Picture this scene with me for a moment. Um, Just imagine for a moment that Midlothian was built on the edge of what people thought was an extinct volcano. But somehow, miraculously, you get word, and it is a sure word. It is going to happen. That, That volcano actually isn't extinct. It is going to erupt, and that eruption is imminent. You don't know if it's like in the next minute. You don't know if it's in the next week or the next month, the next year, the next decade. But all you know is that volcano is going to erupt. And when it erupts, everyone in this city will perish. Just imagine, you get that word. What would happen in you? Well, I think if you have any sort of an open-heartedness to people and a love for people, everything else that you're doing, you would drop, and the ambition of your life would be to warn these people that are precious to you, that you love, of impending destruction. You would drop everything else and give your life to make sure these people that you care for know that volcano is about to erupt, and when it erupts, everybody here is going to die. So please, get out of this area. You would be warning them. You would be doing everything you can to get them out of here. That's what urgency looks like. Urgency means that we are dropping Less important things as we make the most important things central in our life. That, that's urgency. And we're praying for that urgency in, in 2021. Now, carry that illustration through. The only thing separating people who are perishing from being cut off from God forever is that thin little line called death. And death is imminent for us all, isn't it? We're not promised tomorrow or the next minute, for that matter. It's imminent for us all. So so here's what we know about every person who is perishing. They may live another minute, another week, another month, another year, another decade, but their death is imminent. And when they die, the volcano of God's wrath is going to erupt. And they will be cut off from God forever if they die in their unbelief. They will perish forever. And if that's true, it just demands urgency, doesn't it? 
I mean, we're talking about heaven and hell. We're talking about the forever welcome or the forever wrath of God. May that put in us urgency for this year. Amen? A deepened ache, a renewed urgency. Prayer number three is a new boldness. A new boldness. I'm just convinced that the number one obstacle between us and engaging with people in spiritual conversations is just fear. It's scary to do that. Our reputation goes on the line. Our coolness goes on. All those things go on the line every time we open up our mouth and talk about Jesus. Uh, One commentator said about this passage, he says, many words can be spoken in human discourse without the slightest risk or need for courage. But speaking this word, a Christ-centered word, always requires courage. I agree with that. It always requires courage. Um, Just picture you talking with anyone that you know. Um, There is a way of talking with that person that requires no risk. Um, We can talk about the Cowboys and the fact that they're probably going to lose today, right? Um, We can talk about the weather. We can talk about all of those things, and it just requires no risk. But as soon as you turn the conversation to Jesus, it requires a fresh wave of courage. I've been following Jesus for 25 years, and every time in a conversation, and there's typically this decisive little moment where a door is open and the conversation can shift in this way, every single time it is required a fresh wave of courage. We need that. We need the the Lord to give us a renewed courage, a renewed sense of boldness. So, So let's ask Jesus for that. If you're looking at your life and you could just acknowledge, man, I am fearful in most of these conversations. Therefore, I shy away from these conversations. Let's acknowledge that before the Lord. Let's repent of that this morning. Let's ask Jesus for new and deepened boldness to to talk about the things that matter most in life. And here's one of the things about courage that I love. Courage is contagious. If the Lord gives you a healthy dose of courage in 2021 to engage in spiritual conversations, you know what that's gonna do for people around you? It's going to drip into their life as well. They're going to hear you talking about those moments, and it's going to give them courage to have those conversations. And then they're going to be talking about those moments, and it's going to give their friends courage to have those conversations. Courage is contagious in that way. And wouldn't it be an amazing thing for all of us just to receive from the Lord and then from one another a lot of courage in 2021? It'd be amazing. And again, just to remind you, one way you can help spur that on is to go to stonegate.church slash one, share your story about conversations that you're having with people. That would be such an inspiring thing for our church family. Prayer number four is for exponential fruitfulness. Man, I am praying in 2021 for a couple of hundred conversions around our church family that the Lord would use this church to do that work, to produce that sort of fruitfulness. Like a sort of fruitfulness that we could just look at at the end of the year and just say, man, that was not us. That was, that was God. That was the Holy Spirit working through us for God to do that this year. Amen? Man, wouldn't you love to see that? Who in here would not love to be a church that God is using for that sort of fruitfulness? Man, I would. I know you would. So let's pray. Let's just beg the Lord to do that. So here we are now to our who is your one? Who's your new one? So grab that card. It should have been on the seat when you sat down. I just want you to take a look at that card for a moment. Just asking the Lord now for who is that one person? Not 100 of them, not 50, not 10, just 
the one. That the one person that God would, God would have you pray for and pursue. Who, who is that one? Here's our commitment, that we would pray for them, that we would be asking God to do that preparatory work in their heart so that when we have that conversation, it is teed up and ready to go. So we're praying, begging the Lord to be at work in them. And then we pursue. And what pursue means, you can just write maybe this date down um, on the one that says your copy. It means by the end of February, we have engaged in a spiritual conversation with our one, praying for and pursuing our one. Now, let me just remind you of the goal. The goal is 100% participation. So I'm looking at everyone that's here this morning, and I'm asking you to jump in on this. What greater thing could the next three months of your life have within it than God using you to shape the eternal destiny of a human being? There's nothing more important than that. Nothing more lasting than that. So, so it's 100% participation. We're just asking every single one of us to make sure you are finding that one, asking God to clarify that one, then praying for and pursuing that one. Now here's how it works. If you'll look at that card, you'll see there's three sections to it, and there's two spots for you to write who's your one down, that name down. There's one that says your copy, and then there's that last section uh, that allows you to write your name and information in there along with your one. You're just going to tear that off. It's a perforated edge. You're going to tear that off, and then we're about to sing to Jesus, just reminding and rehearsing truths about the good news of Jesus together. And as we sing, there's going to be plenty of time, so you can kind of keep your space, but as we sing, I'm asking everyone in the room to, to bring your card either up to one of the baskets that's at the front. We have two little places to drop them off here, or we've got baskets at each of the exits um, at the back of the room. So I'm asking every single person in the room, write down that one, commit to pray for, pursue that one, and then bring that last section of that card up and drop it in the basket. This gives us a way to send you some reminders over the next few weeks to encourage you along the way in the next few weeks. So if you'll do that, I would just so greatly appreciate it. So why don't you bow your head there where you are? I want to give you just a moment to spend with Jesus now. Who would that one be? And by the way, parents, this is such a great equipping, teaching opportunity in your family. If you've got kids in your house, it was so interesting. A couple of nights ago, um, I was talking to Caleb about this. And Caleb's question is, Dad, Dad what, do you, what do you do when you initiate a conversation about Jesus? How, how does that go? What does that sound like? What a great conversation for you to have with your kids. Who is that one? And then for some in the room, this is your day to meet Jesus. If you died today, you would perish forever. Why is that? Because you've persisted in your unbelief. And you've persisted in your unbelief because your eyes have been blinded to the beauty of Jesus. But today, it's happening. God is shining that light in your heart. Your, your eyes are coming open to the wonder of the gospel and the beauty of Jesus. 
You're seeing your sin, turning from your sin, and you're throwing your life upon Jesus, holding your life up to God and just saying to him, God, here I am, save me, rescue me. If that's you today, take that decisive step. Push your life all in with Jesus. He stands with arms wide open and ready to rescue you today. So, oh God, would you do that rescuing work? Right here in this room this morning, would you do that work? And Father, for those who are rescued, God, would you deepen the ache in us? God, will you give us a new urgency, new boldness? And oh God, would you use this church family through the power of your spirit produce fruit in us. We want to be used in your rescuing work this year, oh God. And Father, I pray that this moment now, as we're writing these names and committing to pray for and pursue these particular people, the people we love and want to see you rescue. God, I pray that you would take this moment and the ripples of this moment would be felt in a billion years from now. A billion years from now. God, would you do it? And it's in your good name that we ask it. Amen.